Hello, everybody, and welcome back to some interseason goodness from your boys at Sequelizers. And we're still isolated, still in lockdown, and I'm still your host, as always, Jack Chambers. And joining me, my fellow Sequelizer, Mr. Matthew Stockton. It is a recipe of my own sauté of unborn octopus. <laughs> <laughs> All shall be explained. <laughs> no, Don't you worry. Uh, and of course, welcome. joining us, Mr. Tim Atom. Ki-i. <laughs> That's me doing a karate thing. I liked it. Good lord. Good lord. So, we're doing some uh, unusual interseason stuff, because, you know... We're stuck at home. We have to come up with new ideas. We kind of uh, extended the interseason period from what we originally planned, and have uh, yeah come up with some new ideas. And we're branching out a little bit. And a big part of that was us talking about streaming services, as we've already done earlier on in the interseason stuff. And we will also be are we talking about what we can catch up on? Basically, pretty much what other stuff we're going to be watching on the various streaming services that are available. And this episode in particular, we're calling it Classic Catch-Up. And we want to say that's films before 1980 that are available on streaming services that the three of us would recommend, essentially. At time of recording, British releases, but most of them should still be available. <laughs> yes, on British versions of those streaming services, etc., yeah. etc., Get your VPNs out. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Providing they don't drop off Netflix. <laughs> mm. And I think this is a particularly important topic because, and it's something Matt kind of brought to my attention and not something I'd really thought about because, as I've said before, I am notoriously bad for not knowing old classic films, that there aren't actually that many available in many of the mainstream. You think like the Amazons and the Netflixes and all that kind of stuff. There's often not that much available on there, and they really kind of focus on post-1980, kind of more modern era stuff. And it's something that was quite an interesting thing for me to research because it was really something I hadn't particularly thought about. And was it something you've kind of gone through, Matt, and had a look at in the past, or was it something you kind of came up as just an idea for the episode, or what was your thinking behind coming up with the concept in general? Yeah, so, I mean, I think um, it is it is a... a an item of concern that, and obviously, you know, Netflix and Amazon and so forth have all clearly done their market research on this and found that people aren't really watching older films, um, which, you know, is is sad and is, you know, uh, a, a chilling indictment of our modern society and so forth and so on. Um, but it means that they're not putting the money into maintaining these archives of this material and you know particularly with a company like Netflix where it's much more profitable for it to have all its own material on there you know if in an ideal world it would slowly transition so that only Netflix properties were on Netflix and it didn't have to pay licensing fees and obviously anything that is old that is going to apply you know there there's there's uh, their productions only go back you know a few years they're certainly not going to have classic films that they have the rights to. Um, so I think it is worth, it's worth, you know, A, doing a kind of call to 
pay attention to this older good content that is out there you know the stuff that is available for us to watch on these services and, and maybe encourage them to invest more in some older films um and it is also that you know it's there's a temptation and i know i certainly fall victim to it you know we're all in isolation it's a good chance to binge watch stuff and you're often going to just go for the easy stuff the obvious stuff that is right there on the the menu when you open up and sometimes it is worth digging a little deeper and trying to find stuff that is a little bit buried and that you may not normally cast your eye over basically put down the crisps and eat some fucking vegetables <laughs> um cinematically speaking even even though i don't think anything that we're suggesting here is like we haven't got a lot of uh, you know twenty-hour German documentaries from nineteen forty. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're, everything that we're recommending is pretty enjoyable stuff, and despite being you know pre nineteen eighty, I think most of it is still enjoyable to modern audiences. I would say all of these films are still enjoyable to modern audiences. Um, you know, the pace may be slightly different to what your standard Hollywood blockbuster is now, but the films are good enough that, you know, within five, ten minutes of watching, you you have bought into that universe the same way you do, you know, you you buy into the Star Wars universe or you buy into the Harry Potter universe. You know, you just accept that, you know, these films work at a slightly different tempo and when they're good, that very quickly ceases to be a problem. I think it's probably worth mentioning that we're not talking about some idyllic age of the past where everybody enjoyed classic cinema. Because in truth, there will always be whatever came before, there is a cutoff, and before that cutoff, it's all shit. Um, not because it actually is, but because, you know, the, the, the um, flippancy of youth, shall we say. So case in point... A lot of our, you know, audience, broad range of, um, well, gender, ethnicity, location, age, all that kind of stuff. But if we have a younger end of the audience, so in their early 20s and stuff, and we say, oh, a classic film, and they might go, do you mean like Minority Report? And you're like, fuck off, Minority Report's not that old. It's like, it's 18 <laughs> years old. And you're like, oh, I guess, I guess that is a Spielberg oh classic then. Oh, God, I feel so old. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's like it's like well, no, a classic Spielberg is the seventies and eighties. It's like no, I mean yes, obviously, but no, his early two thousands work is as well. Saving Private Ryan is yes, very no. anciently classic in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yes, but no. Um, but equally, um, um, and, and I, obviously we've all fallen foul of this. And it's only when you start getting something you discover, you think actually I really love this. Are there more things like this? And then you slowly work back. It's very hard to be dropped into the deep end and say. Okay, little, you know, seven-year-old Timmy, did you really enjoy uh, Lord of the Rings? Oh, I did so very much. Fantastic. Would you like to watch Metropolis? What's Metropolis? It's a silent movie. What, <laughs> what, what do you mean? And there's a very strong possibility <laughs> that kid go, I fucking love this. This is great. I don't understand it. There's also boobs in it, but um, <laughs> it's great. Um, but there's also a possibility they go, it's boring, and I can't read the subtitles because it's you know it's obviously we've got the title cards. There is just the language of cinema evolves, and once you understand that evolution of language, it makes sense. So you have the silent films, which are then 
interspersed with title cards to sort of explain what's roughly going on and you sort of cut over the basic things. You have sound movies. You then have things going into colour and then the 70s change again in terms of non-studio productions. And again, again, that's a very, very brief view and a very Western view, but still it's hard to get past. I mean, and Tim's made a great example of Star Wars. That one has aged extremely well because it also shaped how we see modern cinema in a way. Um, whereas if you listen to any or watch any film from the 50s, especially like a big classic Western or something like that, they can be fantastic filmmaking, really good performances, amazing vistas. But some of the things just take you out that you don't realise. And it's usually things like the sound design or day for night shots that look like shit or the music being so intrusive and then you realize that's just how the language progressed that's mm. literally just how films were um same thing with again movies from the the 30s and 40s which is this really crackling audio and the the the, the visuals might be shit unless it's a cleaned up dvd or blu-ray edition um and in, in the same way that you know our generation especially going to things like oh the 80s had great films but if you'd shown certain kids they might say this is boring this is really... I mean, Ghostbusters is a great example. Kids might just find it fucking dull. Um, I can't guarantee. I don't know. But it's... it's Every every era has its own quirks of the of the genre that was happening. In the same way that you saw someone from the early 2000s uh, and it's like, why is it all so high contrast and weirdly saturated and all the snap cuts are kind of giving me a bit of a headache? It's like, well, we thought it was a good idea at the time, so everyone fucking did it. Why is there yeah. so much slow motion? Just because. Just, just go with it. So you you have to get past these things. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely fascinating, like going back and seeing the the way that, like you say, the cinematic language has evolved and um you know, and, and, and finding the things that were so influential that they they now have just uh become how things are. Um, I know your uh your one that you always uh come back to is uh the car failing to start in uh, is it in double, double indemnity. indemnity yeah that's right yeah. yeah uh where to audiences at the time that was like a a moment of uh sort of real life intruding into the the artificiality mm, of cinema yeah, that was completely mind blowing uh and now today that's a cliche of you know the the person being pursued gets in the car and oh the car doesn't start you know uh the way these things uh yeah evolve and change is mm. always fascinating and it is it's interesting to go back to an earlier time and just see the kind of what has been retained what has been lost in terms of the way we we tell these stories yeah i, I think that's that's genuinely it and i also think it's quite interesting in terms of Recommending films from the past is much like trying to recommend an international or foreign language film that isn't dubbed, that's subtitled specifically. It, it, sometimes for some people, it's just like, mm, I can't. And, and obviously, of course you fucking can. Get over yourself. It takes time. It's frustrating. You have to pay a bit more attention, but you get into it. You understand a bit more. You sometimes lose a bit because you're so busy reading that you lose what's going on in the actual face of the performance sometimes. But you 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 learn how to do that. Fifties is a good example because they're so big and colourful. They're trying to distract you from the events of the war that you either have stuff that's like some grim black and white noir stuff or you have like a kiss me deadly kind of thing or you have a big colorful fucking musical number to say nothing is bad everything is fine ptsd <laughs> does not exist um and 
but both of them you have to really approach them in, in in a different way and once you understand the 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 way they communicate to you and what they get across you can get so much relatable content also again the further back you're like like a james cagney sort of film um like an old 20s 30s style uh you know public enemy kind of thing once you get over the nature of of how actors talk as well. Um, and it, it, it can be very jarring because we're used to a very realistic style. And back then it was still a bit theatrical, still a bit over the top. And so it didn't feel as immersive as things do now. And cameras not moving and all the different bits pieces, you get the evolution of, of, of the technology as well, etc. Um, but Tim also brought up a really important point in my mind, which is the nature of, uh, of, of archive. Now, I've mentioned before that I have a very large, expensive collection of, of DVDs and Blu-ray, and part of that is because I know I have them. And we mentioned this is on streaming services, and the ones we're going to recommend later are currently available. Now, to be fair, by the time this goes out to audiences, all of them might be gone from those streaming services, because who the <laughs> fuck knows the streaming services? Um, yeah, that's true. It's, it's really frustrating, but... It's also the logic that, again, as I said before, there's no there's no golden age. It's not like when I was a kid, it'd be like, oh, everybody watched everything. It's like, fuck off. No, they didn't. You were watching things from the 90s because it was the 90s and it was new and it was cool. And if it wasn't Jurassic Park, why was I watching it? That kind of thing. Um, and an old, in inverted commas, film for me was Star Wars or Indiana Jones because they were before I was born. That was my logic. Anything before that was dad shit and boring. Um, my, I, I love science fiction. My dad likes westerns, and we clashed on that. I mean, I know Jack has mentioned before about the the coming together of familiarities. Only now, as an adult, that I realised that science fiction and westerns are the same fucking thing. It's frontier <laughs> life. It's it's the idea of what is it like to be on the edge and to prove yourself as a human and survive against the odds. And you're like, oh, we like the same thing, but we just didn't communicate to each other because you didn't know, you know. That kind of stuff is like, oh, that makes sense. But it, it's it's weird because the evolution of of home media has become that you can't really find a lot on Netflix. I mean, we did like a long list of things. We were, I was literally just trawling through Netflix and Amazon and Prime and a few other bits and pieces trying to find anything before 1970, just licking, ticking off things I'd heard of and or seen. And there's not a lot. It's it's I mean, comparatively speaking, based on how much content they have. You'd think there'd be tons of it, but there's not. Yeah. And Turner classic movies or that kind of stuff. Or there's always a channel that shows all those old films on endless fucking loops. And I think it's a strange statistic that in the 40, 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, there were more films being produced than there ever have been ever, even now. Um, in the same way that, you know, YouTube is making more content than you can ever watch kind of thing. The difference is a lot of it was lost or burned or reused over the footage. And you just, you know, that, that it's just not available anymore. But because of this, there is now a very niche market. So the physical media is not the industry it once was. Everyone's kind of based on streaming. And if it's really, really special, or they really like it, they might buy it, maybe. But then those of people like me who really want to watch certain things, there's stuff like a Criterion collection, Blu-ray, or the Arrow collection. And then you get something like... Um, okay, let's take an example of, of the Criterion Collection. Based on now, there's a film called Sancho the Bailiff, um, which is an old Japanese film from 1950 or 54, I want to say. Um, that is one movie, and it's being priced at, I think, about 30... 35 pounds? 30, I think 30 pounds, which is, what, like $40 
38 dollars that kind of thing um uh roma i just come out and they've done a criterion collection 25 quid um if you want to see uh e tu mama tambien um that's 37 pounds for one film and i have the dvd which cost me about six quid but if you want this luxury collector's edition i mean godzilla for crying out loud godzilla's most expensive criterion collection i got because to be fair there are a lot of them 150 quid and like uh i need it on blu-ray because then we can have a blu-ray in this country at this point in time but they know you're going to buy it the bfi collection over here the criterion sort of stuff um they become extremely expensive. So if you want to watch an older film, I mean, I mentioned like uh, the Human Condition trilogy a while ago. And again, getting a hold of that one was almost impossible in this country. And then finally they release it and it's a little bit better now. It's still not, you know, in inverted commas, cheap. But considering I could pick up a copy of, I mean, Mr. and Mrs. Smith starring Angelina Jolie <laughs> and Brad Pitt on, on DVD for maybe a pound and Blu-ray for maybe a couple of quid if it's on Blu-ray. And that's, yeah, fine, bugger it, whatever. But if you want to watch a classic older film, which is, you know, decades, decades older, you'd be paying, I mean, several hundred percent more than that. So it's... It's so bizarre. It's a hard thing to get into as well because you can't just go, I guess I'll watch this and watch it and go, oh, I didn't fucking like that and I paid £30 for it shit <laughs> yeah. there's a gag in Sopranos which I love where um, uh, Tony's wife sets up a, like a film club and they like oh we should go through the, the AFI top films of all time and they all start watching uh, Citizen Kane and it's, it's one of those genius moments of trying to obviously uh, parallel the actual life of the Sopranos themselves um, and they're all just so horribly horribly bored and they, you know these sort of uh, mafia wives are like ah oh, this is shit we should never do this ever again. Um, but trying to keep face it like, oh, no, it was really interesting. I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed that. I'll see you next week for maybe another one. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Because like, it's a hard thing. Citizen Kane is fucking amazing cinema. It did so many things and it does them so fucking well. But God damn, it's a hard one to recommend sometimes. It's like, hey, sit down. <laughs> Why is, where's all the color? Okay, well, <sighs> all right. What's it about? It's about a guy who owns a newspaper. Just just watch it. And that, that is the tricky thing, because as much as a lot of these films have a huge like pedigree and, you know, uh, will be starring perhaps people who you've heard of who were, you know, big stars in, in the past or whatever. But because so few of them are available to stream, they don't have that opportunity for people to discover and kind of trial them. Um, and when you have, you know, Criterion collections where it's 30 quid to buy the DVD, people aren't going to take a risk on something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's really down to things like channels that specialise in classic movies or, you know, uh, stuff like that to maintain that kind of sense of like, yeah, you can stumble across something and if you give if you allow yourself to be absorbed by it, then you may actually really like it and, and be willing to spend that, you know, 30 quid on on a Blu-ray copy or whatever. But um, it's it's making sure people have that opportunity. Which is which is so weird because, if you again, TCM or Turner Classic Movies, and I think I'm pretty sure it's like American, British specifically, um, and I'm sure it's available otherwise in the world. Um, it's it's frustrating because it's like oh it's classic movies and like right cool no I, I understand what you're doing here I get it I get it and then I'm in a constant loop and whatever 
but I can't imagine doing that now. If you were saying like, oh, what is it? Oh, it's movies from the 2010s. Just, just these ones. Uh, what, what do you mean? Like horror? Like romance? No, no, no. All of them. That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't really work. I don't think I can, I can watch those films. No, 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 no. It's everything. Don't worry. We're going to flip back between Triple Frontier and we're also going to watch at the same time one of the Transformers films. I was like, okay, I can kind of see the action logic there. That makes sense. And then Last Christmas. And you're like, what the fuck? And then later tonight, <laughs> Hereditary. See, exactly. And it's like, there's there's no link. It's like, yeah, but it's like, they're all the same because they're from this era. I'm like, no, they're really fucking not. And similarly, I mean, all these films are before 1970. And I think there's a very small time period, like 40 years, basically. Now, that, obviously, 40 years is a huge time period. That's, that's longer than I've been alive uh, between our first film and our most recent film on this, on this list. Um, but in truth... That's no different to, right, 2020, 1980. Pick some films. Oh, wow, you're going to see some huge classics coming out now. And of course you would. And But there would be a little bit of cohesion to them sometimes. Even if it was like an international release or something that came over in the West, whatever it's going to be, it's still going to feel like a pocket of a certain century, as it were. It's, there'll, be, there'll be evolutionary changes. Like if you have one of the earlier ones being... Um, the Empire Strikes Back. That's your earliest one at 1980. And then you got something on the other side, like Arrival, and you're like, yeah, I can still see these are the same things. The, the production design is different, but the storytelling beats and the things, it's a bit meshed up and they've tried more radical things there, but it's it's the same It's the same medium. It's the same thing. And, and it's kind of the same of what we're going to say between our, our picks, you know, later in the episode. There's a lot of similarities to them. But... We will get to all that good stuff, don't worry. We certainly will. And like I said, it's something that I've not really uh, done my due diligence on in the past. And it's something I need to certainly do my research on in terms of older films. And like Metropolis is probably the oldest film I've seen. And I watched that because it's such a kind of iconic moment in science fiction, I guess. Because uh, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was kind of the... I wasn't necessarily anti-old film, anti-classic film, but it's just not something that was really in my brain. You mentioned the Western kind of stuff that was happening in the 50s and 60s earlier on. Like, that's pretty much my cornerstone was the stuff I'd watch with my parents. So it was the Sergio Leone stuff, the the stuff that's like Seven Samurai and the Kurosawa kind of stuff, the original Godzilla movies. It was all 50s and 60s and that kind of thing. But apart from that, I was never like, oh, like you said, I would never go out of my way to find some movie from the 1960s or 70s or whatever, or even 30s or 40s. Mm. I don't think I've ever seen a film from the 40s consciously. I might have done. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like that specifically that decade, I guess, is not something that stands out in my brain. of like, what would I have seen that's in the 40s? I can't think of anything. It's it's a weird one because the 40s at the end of the day, the war was on. So, you know. Well, yeah, exactly. I guess I've seen footage from the war. (laughs) (laughs) But that doesn't quite count. Mm. Um, I'm just going to talk about... So I've not really seen any films from the 1940s. Obviously, there's a bunch of classics that are in the 1940s. I've heard, like, you know, Casablanca is a classic, It's a Wonderful Life is a classic, Citizen Kane, Maltese Falcon. Uh, You mentioned Double Indemnity earlier. Like, there's so much stuff from the 40s that I just have not seen at all. And I find that particularly frustrating. I really do, because whenever I say, oh, you, I mean, this literally happened um, 
uh, a couple of days ago. So um, I may have mentioned it before. Um, so uh, David uh, is the guy who scores a lot of the film work I do, the the, t- the series I do, the Super Kill Time. I'm a really cool guy and extremely fucking talented. And uh, I'm friends with his son, Jono, um, who listens to the show. And he was just asking about sort of Japanese films. And saying he's really getting into certain things and what can he watch? And I said, you should watch this, 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 and just reeled off tons of just different options and the things available to him. Saying, like, try that, maybe this. Um, and if you like this, try that. And the remake of Harakiri is really good, but you should watch the original of Harakiri, that kind of thing. And at no point did I think of ever following up with, how can you watch all this stuff? Because unless you buy these movies, you kind of can't. Now, Having said that, we're talking, we didn't mention this in the streaming services chat, and I kind of wish I brought it up, but, you know, two hours of talking. I didn't appreciate that there is something called the, the Criterion Channel. Have you guys heard about this? Yes, yeah. Yeah. And the Criterion Channel, I think you get through Netflix in the States, or at least it's, it's sort of like an, a, a modular appendage or something like that. But the idea is you can subscribe to it, and it's fucking expensive. I think it's something like 12 twelve dollars a month or a hundred dollars for the year i don't think it's available over here or not and you've access to just the criterion collection which is literally you know a thousand plus movies it's, it's really good and they're fantastic movies but fuck me that's a that's a big ask for effectively old and foreign films and i'm not saying that cheapens them in any way shape or form but you're like nothing new is being added on there yes of course there being more things added to the catalog and they're of the highest quality and caliber and you know the best cleanup you can get and to be fair some of the cinematic grades but fuck me that is a that is a big ask i mean disney gives you all the disney stuff for like a five or a month you double that for these things and i mean i'm not saying it's not worth it but you know it's it's, it's tricky sometimes so there are a, there are ways and i should also point out like i did with the human condition you can see a lot of these movies for free on youtube because Nobody seems to give a fuck because yeah. <laughs> the licenses have either lapsed or something or the rights have lapsed, but people just don't care. If you if you try and post a whiff, a whiff of a new Marvel film, YouTube will screw you to the fucking wall. If you post an entire movie from 1971, people just sort of shrug up. Yeah, fair. Fuck it. Most of the time. It's, it's very weird. So some of the things we're going to recommend today, for example, I bet you can fucking find on YouTube. Uh, if they've fallen off Netflix or Amazon or, or whatever. Um, but uh, with that in mind, should we get to recommending some films? Yeah, that seem, seems like a good idea. Jack, do you want to uh, tackle the first one with your first uh, choice or choices? Certainly. And you hinted at it there, Tim. All of mine are little double bills. Ooh. I've got a... We're going for three choices each, as is Sequelizer's tradition. There's three of us, three choices each. I'm being cheeky. Each one of mine is a package of two, and they're pretty directly related. I'm not just doing a Stogden and going off with a bunch of honourable mentions and bullshit. How dare you! I'm going to kick things off with perhaps my most obvious one, some classic Disney films. And Mm. two that particularly stand out and... My partner, Emma, was like, right, you need to mention this and this and this. And she kept mentioning Sleeping Beauty as like her all-time classic. I, like, I agree. I, I don't care about Sleeping Beauty. Oh. Never have done. Never will do. One that really stands out to me, and um, from my childhood, is from 1967, which I didn't even realize it was that old, to be honest, because it holds up so well. Yeah. Is Jungle Book. The original Jungle Book. And 
it's kind of relevant because we've had all these weird quote unquote live action versions of it recently with the the circus version and the other version and all this weird shit but mm-hmm. going back to the original animated classic it is so damn good the songs are so catchy sheer the, the fight with sheer calm with the fire and the field and stuff is so epic and beautiful yeah. and yeah Baloo and and Bagheera and all these brilliant characters there's some fantastic voice acting fantastic singing performances it looks really nice and it holds up really really well in my opinion it's got some of the best disney songs like who doesn't know bare necessities mm. it's an all-time classic and perhaps less of a classic but something that i really enjoyed as a kid and again i think it has one of the best songs and kind of very much defined my early kind of disney introductions from 1970 and it's aristocats Mm. And I think Everybody Wants to Be a Cat is an all-time great Disney song. And I was not a cat person growing up. I grew up with dogs. But mm. now I, I own the menace known as Toothless. Mm. Uh, I, I feel like I can now appreciate Aristocats in a, in a different way and and <laughs> view cats through a different lens, if yeah. you will. And not, not cats, Tom Hooper cats. I mean, <laughs> cat, cats. I refuse to watch that through any kind of lens. <laughs> But Aristocats is cats done right. Aristocats is a actually has, you know, likable characters and they're cutely drawn and hilarious, weird little side characters and it's all very quirky and weird. But and jazzy. But yeah, it, I love both of those films. I always think it's pretty much just a jazzy remake of um, Lady and the Tramp, but in a good way. <laughs> You're more of a Lady and the Tramp kind of guy, are you, Matt? Blue, blue, oh no, no, I prefer Aristocats personally. I think the blue collar versus refined kind of or ivory tower. It's it's a nice classic sort of thing. Also with the Jungle Book, um, it's it's an, an very important to note. Jungle Book is the last film that Disney effective Walt Disney effectively worked on before he died uh, or was working yeah. on. Um, so it's one of those sort of everything after that point becomes. Disney legacy and people evolving the company and moving on and yada 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 but that for him was like his last hands on or, or even a remote involvement with the project as an idea but I agree um, Aristocats is a weird one for me I like it but I don't like it as much I think it's very very jazzy and I'm not a big fan of jazz um, I Jungle Book though yeah that's that's a that's a fucking straight classic and as you say George Sanders as as uh, or Sanders as Shere Khan and, and Cabba as Bagheera some, some fucking amazing voice acting um with the usual Disney stable but also uh, uh, some very prominent actors coming in and stuff so and and you say iconic stuff just really memorable so I I I fully support those choices Yeah J- Jungle Book was one of the few Disney VHSs and you know we t- we talked about how channels control access to stuff the fucking disney vault which fucking was disney vault. obviously so different now with uh disney plus just yeah. offering every single thing up um but yes uh jungle book was one of the few vhs's that i that my family owned as a kid few one of the few disney films um and so i watched that over and over as a child um Loved it. I was very. Uh, I think the John Favreau version is fine, but I was very disappointed that it didn't have four vultures who were based on the Beatles. In it. <laughs> um, and yeah, Aristocats. I think, I think you you hit the nail on the head, Jack, when you said it was cats done right. Um, <laughs> and it's fascinating that uh, um, 
in the 90s, Steven Spielberg was planning an animated version yeah, of Cats. Yeah, he was. Uh, that was going to be set in the Blitz, I believe. Yeah, um, and there's you can find kind of concept art of that around. And some of it looks very similar to Aristocats. That could have been really um, good. And uh, also, I think Thomas O'Malley, the, the kind of the male lead of that film, does feel like a kind of... Disney warming up to then having the anthropomorphic fox in Robin Hood uh, oh. as like, hey, we're going to make a whole generation of furries. Because <laughs> like to- Thomas O'Malley like definitely looks like a cat, but he also kind of looks like Han Solo. So you know, <laughs> and it's also it's it's Phil Harris, isn't it? Who voices him? Who's the um, uh, he, Phil Harris, very. No- I mean, obviously, he worked with Disney a lot, but he was the voice of Baloo. So it's like, hey, it's that guy. You recognize his voice so often and so regularly, and, and it's like, hey, Phil Harris is one of those notable sounding voices from from Disney stuff. You're like, basically, just playing bears. He played. Um, he he plays play Little them? John in Robin Hood as well. That's right. Yes, exactly. He's just that very big, deep American sort of. I can't even describe, but it sounds so fifties to me. The idea of well, wow, that kind of almost John Wayney kind of drawl in a way. But yeah, so <laughs> him being, you know, an alley cat is just again another one of those like rugged mindsets against Eva Gabor's very ivory tower, you know, uh, refined European sort of sound to her. So yeah, yeah, good shout. And again, I, I think anyone, whether you're watching with a family or just as an adult, they're, they're good films, except. Jungle Book's got mm, maybe a few tiny touches of racism and Aristocats has the fucking, in inverted commas, Asian cat playing the piano with chopsticks. But the Disney Plus, I must admit, we said this before, I think it does say on the screen some of these depictions are anachronistic and and, and dated and so on and so forth. And they're not, they're, they're of their time. They're not something to aspire to. Like, good. I'm glad you said that. But these ones, all things considered, I mean, one of my favorite films from Disney thing is Peter Pan. Fuck me, you have to say, I recommend this. I mean, maybe not the Native American stuff. Holy fuck, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as as far as Disney racism goes, these are at the lower end of the spectrum. <laughs> this uh, is true for the time period. Definitely, there's a there's a lot of problems with a lot of Disney stuff going on in the. 60s and before so sure yeah. thankfully we're at the tail end of this ish and yeah. uh, it was yeah. the past it was pretty bleak yeah it's not it's not the crows and dumbo it's not you know songs from the south or anything like that so we can uh, yeah that's a 40s film <laughs> <laughs> and one i've not seen <laughs> uh yeah so yeah from uh some disney classics matt what did you have in mind Let's go with my Disney lesson. choice because I I decided to go with one Amazon Prime film, one Disney film, and one Netflix film. Because if you have all three streaming services, boom. If you have only one, you can watch one. So it's a bit of a weird one. With Disney Plus, I thought I'm going to do basically what just Jack just did and say let's get a classic Disney animated film that I really like and just slap that up there. Because if you want to think about people who say like, oh, I, I don't watch films from the fifties. Have you seen Cinderella? Oh yeah, I love that animated film. You know, bibbidi bobbidi boo. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's from the fucking fifties, you dolt. It's like, oh, <laughs> is it? It's like, yeah, exactly. And that's and as you say, it is a testament to how well these films have have held up and stuff. 
um, that you wouldn't even associate it with the past in inverted commas until you, you know weird stuff or references that we grew up on that don't make sense because they were referring to not necessarily pop culture but visuals that mean nothing to us like how do you show a poor person he has a top hat that's made of a can it's like what um, anyway, so I went with the live action Disney film and fuck okay. me, live action Disney films are and have always been, it seems quite crap. Uh, they've also been incredibly formative because there have been some really good ones as well. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that people know of Herbie. I'm not I'm not picking the love bug or in that shit, but um, people know of the, 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 the iconic image, whether they've seen the film or not. And I think that's a lot of the thing with the Disney films and such. And there's a lot of really shocking crap i wanted to talk about because it's bad but that's not what i'm here for i'm gonna talk about a big ass epic by richard fleischer richard fleischer is a fantastic fucking director in general he does big spectacle pieces in the in the 50s and 60s he did things like um the the old 60s dr doolittle and the 50s vikings with with um uh kirk douglas and tora 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 after you know Kurosawa wasn't involved. Um, he did later stuff. He did Red Sonja and Conan the Destroyer. So he's, he's got a big, broad spectrum of stuff available to him. But 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, 1954, which shaped a lot of how a lot of them, certain bits of Disneyland used to look at times. Um, it, it's just, it's really fucking fun. It's some, it's some, it's some great stuff. It's a cast of four main individuals. You've got Kirk Douglas, being the sort of, again, rugged American sea shanty singing sailor. You've got James mm. Mason as the almost psychotic Nemo and he's more refined and hard, um, hard-edged and very mission-driven. Uh, you've got Paul Lucas as a, a sort of French, not aristocrat, but basically a professor who comes along with the whole thing. And Peter Lorre, who is just stupidly... I love Peter Lorre and we'll come back to him later, but goddamn, he's great in this. As a, as a moment where, where Kirk Douglas is like, you can punch me right in the face. Go on. It's, it's great. Go for it. He goes, okay, you're not going to move. No, 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 I take it. And he hits him. He's obviously expecting the punch in the face. Slaps him straight in the gut and says, ah, now we are friends. And it's like, ah, oh, this is this is good. This is this is great fucking banter, for like a better word. And the, the chemistry is wonderful. <laughs> the set designs are fucking gorgeous. When you, when you see all the stuff they're doing, because it's a, it's a period piece set in the late 1800s um, with the Nautilus, but this thing looking like a fucking fish out of Stingray or something like that, a sort of Jerry Anderson production. And the the giant squid attack, where basically just goes and harpoons the fucking thing in the face. Um, yeah. There's some comedy scenes. It's just, it, it's a really good classic adventure piece that feels... Again, it has a lot of that, you know, that it's, you know, filmed in Technicolor kind of look to it. That the cinematography hangs on these very single standard shots that don't move very much. So it's a, the, the, the style of it is quite different for what people might be used to. But when you get the idea of just, oh, just, just four people and they're discussing the different ideologies of what they're doing in a, in a submarine, basically, and it's a fantasy piece, you're like, yeah, this is actually this is really fun and quite dark and it's kind of scary, but it's very good. It has everything you'd want from that big epic. And then you say it's 1954. And I think it's something that needs to be sort of hammered home multiple times. I mean, Jack talked about like the jungle book, 1967. We say these years quite flippantly. That's that, you know, 54 is, um, sorry, 50, 54, 55. Yeah. 54. 54 it's yeah. It, th yeah. That's, that's literally 30 years before I was born. Um, <laughs> you're old. I am, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm as at a time of release of this episode, thirty six. Um, times of recording, thirty five. <laughs> um, 
But um, you know, that, that, so literally, you know, if I think about almost everything that's happened in my entire life effectively and put that on the back end of what I'd already experienced, it's ages ago. It's an eternity ago. It's, it's a couple of, um, you know, almost a decade after, well, less than a decade after World War II. It's, it's, it's a different era entirely. And yet it's really relatable, really fun. And um, yeah, really good. Have you guys seen the fact? It's one of the things I imagine people have, might have seen maybe clips of or seen parts of it or um, seen maybe when they were a kid kind of thing. I've definitely seen clips of it, but I don't think I've ever seen the, the full thing. Um, I was going to say, like, we've mentioned uh, Peter Lorre before in terms of the Animaniacs. Like, with him and James Mason in a film, it is a great oh. opportunity to be like, oh, that's where that voice comes from. <laughs> yeah, it is it is a it is an accent slash impersonation palaver. James Mason? Oh, just fucking brilliant. Um, there's some great explosive dialogue as well. Um where Mason gets from quite calm and collected and I'm going to do this mission and I'm going to shout at you! And, oh, it's just, <laughs> it's just fucking brilliant. Um, hence, by the way, my opening introduction about Unborn Octopus. You're welcome. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I do recommend, and, and it's not just a case like, oh, I couldn't think of anything. I genuinely recommend this film. It's pretty damn good. Yeah, it's something I did watch as a kid. Again, my dad was kind of introduced me to the classic 50s kind of stuff. And it was uh, the the kind of big adventure films that were a lot of the kind of things that my dad introduced me to. So, mm. obviously not not fifties, but the other one I'm thinking of is like Jason and the Argonauts and all that kind of oh, stuff. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. the the classic big ridiculous over the top adventure films and stuff like that. And more closely related to this, not a Disney film actually, a Fox film, which I hadn't realised until I saw you mention. I didn't even realise twentieth twentieth century. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was a Disney film. It never mm. even occurred to me until you wrote it down. And I was like, oh, holy shit. Yeah, of course it is. Like, yeah. Um, the other Jules Verne like ad- adaptation I'm thinking of is Journey to the Center of the Earth from 1959. Yeah. And that's the one I've I've definitely seen more than I've seen uh, 20,000 Leagues. But yeah, I remember them yeah. both from from being, you know, really, really young, sort of like probably under 10 sort of mm-hmm. age and being my first introduction to like classic cinema and stuff, my dad trying to explain like, okay, so you've got the Around the World in 80 Days, you've got Journey to the Center of the Earth, you've got 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm-hmm. They're all written by the same guy in the 19th century, and he's French. I'm like, what? <laughs> what does any of that mean? He's like, well, yeah. sit down and watch this. This is from the 50s, but this was written in the 1800s. I'm like, they had books in the 1800s? Oh my God, what? The way we, How yeah, is that possible? History. Yeah. Yeah, and Edgar and, um, Allan Poe fucking loves him. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And yeah, I think Twenty Thousand Leagues is is so iconic and influential in so many ways. Like you, you got the amazing central performances from Douglas Mason, Lucas, and Laurie, and even you know Journey to the Center Earth. You got Mason as the lead in that as well, and that was really my introduction to to Mason being that kind of. He plays different characters, but you know what I mean—that kind of classic. Oh yeah, uh, he's like professory kind of. Uh, <laughs> kind he's of. He's the educated, and learned figure who has a good exactly, voice for yes, condescension. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and really, you get stuff that's like it feels. Looking back, it looks very like steampunky and like oh, almost yeah. like the the, along with stuff like Shirley's Frankenstein and stuff like that. This is like defining science fiction as we know it like this is inventing an entire fucking genre 
and you get like the Captain Nemo is such an iconic character and have, having the the Nemo and the Nautilus kind of names that are referenced countless times throughout history mm. <laughs> and uh yeah yeah I think I've, I've not seen or read the mysterious island the the other one that yes. Nemo appears in but um yeah yeah I think he's such a iconic and influential character to be this kind of like like you said, the classic American, almost anti-hero kind of badass mm. kind of character. I think it's overdue for a remake, if I'm honest. Mm, and we, maybe, people said maybe, that about Clash of the Titans, then look what we got. Oh, fuck. Well, <laughs> you know, incompetent hands. Also, I should point out, oh, Nemo okay, has okay. been done in, in like uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, interestingly. so uh, Actually, though, to be yeah. fair, in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, by it being a bad film, his character was fine. <laughs> He's the only one that came out of it like, yeah, he was right. <laughs> um, and and yeah. yet, with 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 the hindsight of you know fifty plus almost sixty years, probably when those those films were made apart, like the Nautilus, uh, as cool as the Nautilus is in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where it's got that kind of like limousine look to it, yeah, it's got nothing on that classic Disney look. Like that no. is so iconic. Yeah, absolutely. No, as, as Jack said, uh, Vern and uh, H.G. Wells and stuff just invented the idea. Well, invented the, the, their whole look is basically steampunk. It's the idea of technology of the future today, but today is a hundred <laughs> plus years ago, um, <laughs> and uh, or one hundred fifty years ago, arguably. Um, but no, it's it's yeah, it's it's worth a watch if you have Disney Plus. Check it out because that one is not going to slip off their service because it's one of their films. So yeah. You'd hope not. Yeah. And I think you get that kind of, yeah, a lot of people calling for remakes um, and uh, just having a look before we were, as we were setting up and stuff, I was kind of looking up like, oh yeah, when when was the, when, has there been a remake for that and all this kind of stuff? And they've tried it a couple of times from what I read and they'd had like McGee attached to it and then <coughs> Ooh, no, 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 m- no. Most, uh, with Will Smith as Nemo, but it, apparently they were unable to negotiate a Not contract with enough. him. And most recently, they had planned to do a titled Captain Nemo film because, of course, everything either has to be one word or the title of the main character these days. They can't, just, <laughs> they can't just call it... Yeah, it would just be called, like... I don't know. Yeah. What would, what would they call it? They'd have to call it Captain Nemo or something like that. Just they, call it, they call it Nemo. Yeah, but then they oh. couldn't call it Captain Nemo because, or Nemo in general because finding Nemo. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, so they were planning to do a Captain Nemo um, film... I think it, it was. Would it be an origin story? <laughs> oh, <fuck laughs> a young off. version yes, played by Tom Holland, and and we oh, it would be Tom Holland, wouldn't it? Um, and James Mangold was attached. Oh, Mangold is, is no longer attached. So. Mangold directing it with John Hamm as Ooh. as Nemo mm. would be very interesting. Yeah. Mm. We just yeah. need more. I mean, what we've learned from sequelizers, we just need more John Hamm in our lives. John Hamm, man, he just needs to do more stuff. Yeah, go on, John, step up to the plate. Started watching uh, Battle, uh, Battle? Uh, Bad Times at the El Royale, and it's like, hey, John Hamm. And there's like, oh, John Hamm's gone now. I won't mm. spoil the film, but <laughs> eh, fucking hell. It's like, uh, yeah. Tim, 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 Tim to Tim. Give us something to watch. Yo. Uh, so I'm going to go with something that is also uh, an iconic piece of science fiction. Ooh. Um, and uh but this this uh this is not so much in the family friendly realm uh um, we go now we're talking even, to even even though tonally like it weirdly 
sort childish of is. Fuck. <laughs> it's childish as fuck. Uh, we, we're about to get horny on Maine because uh, my recommendation <laughs> is Barbarella from 1968. Nice. I'm going to jump right in here. Not that it's not necessary to do this, but I want to do this. Every time we do this, I'm like, that's a fucking great shout. I don't like Barbarella. And uh, I want Tim to defend it now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a weird ass film. Mm, um, true. Like, it's it's so strange. Um, it is very episodic uh, in the way that it presents itself. And in a lot of ways, um, and I, th- I think this is sort of... Uh, yeah, it's based on a, a comic series, a French comic yeah. series, yeah. and it feels very similar to that. There, that it's this kind of almost serialized adventure, but put into a film form because it's just this main character who has this, like we say, sort of kind of a childlike innocence, um, even though she's very sexualized. Um, but she's not presented as a child. It's a grown woman who is just quite naive. It's born um, sexy yesterday again. It is a bit born sexy yesterday, yeah. Um, just kind of wandering around this world, uh, encountering the various strange figures on it. Um, and th- the plot, such as it is, does not really apply um and it's it's just an excuse for this kind of amazing kaleidoscope of visuals and strange encounters um and you get these uh, quite kind of there's a lot uh, obviously like she is a character who has remained kind of a a a a mainstay of like cosplay and things like that because the outfits that she wears across the the course of the film are, are pretty incredible but in terms of visuals it really is like quite an impressive film even though it's just like they're throwing a lot of weird spaghetti at the wall um (laughs) but their but their hit rate is quite impressive and you just have like these strange like doll-faced children that she encounters at the beginning fucked up that scene yeah, they're, it's, it's genuinely creepy. Um, and then she's rescued by this guy in a fursuit who then takes it off and underneath he is just the world's hairiest man <laughs> yeah, um, who, who teaches her to make love the old-fashioned way. Um, and then you just these kind of incredible series of of visuals and concepts like this kind of... Uh, living in a, the the mat moss which kind of forms a central part of uh the plot which is this it's sort of living energy and it's powered by like bad thoughts um and you have uh the uh i forget what it exactly it's called the the kind of pleasure engine that she's plugged into oh the the big organ thing yes where she's just uh so horny that it malfunctions um and you have uh, Pygar, the character who's this um, just amazing-looking golden blind angel guy, uh, and it's it's just so over the top, um, and just kind of incredibly fun to watch. I find because mm. it, it it does kind of it, it, in an era where you know you had the kind of like original Star Trek going on at that time and yeah. and things yeah. like that. And 
I think what people assume the original Star Trek was like when when they just hear like, oh yeah, like Captain Kirk sleeping with all the aliens, blah yeah, blah blah. Yeah. Like this is what there are some like Barbarella is really what they're thinking of. Like Star Trek was pretty straightforward. Family was, stuff, yeah. Yeah. Uh whereas this is just completely butt out bananas in a glorious way. It again, I I personally don't like it because I, in inverted commas, kind of think it's trash. But at the same time, it's flash. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely it's it's absolutely trash. Yeah, but, but it knows it is as well, which is yes. fine. Oh yeah, it, that's the thing. It has no pretension in. No. It, I love it with the same part of me that loves uh, Jupiter ascending. Oh, oh that's oh fucking hell, Tim. But I, I get where you're coming from. Uh, the thing is, it, if, if people are trying to think of like, oh, I've never heard of Barbarella before. Um, if you took away all the spy elements of Austin Powers and just made that mindset and that character and the world that he and Doctor Evil live in and put that in space, yeah. um, <laughs> a space music video that doesn't seem to have a lot of money but has a lot of ideas, that's pretty much what you end up with. Um, but again, for a '60s film, it does bring out a lot of what people think about the '60s. Um, it's it's raunchy and risque and daring, and it, again, because of the nature of the characters, the plot, it does feel very French, but it's very much through an American prism lens. And Fonda knows what's going on, and she's kind of funny in it. She's very sort of self-aware. I, I, I yeah, I think her, she like the fact that she's quite a self-aware character. That helps. Like it helps, and she does a genuinely like good, kind of comedic performance in it. I think mm. I think she's a lot of fun in the film, um, and like like you say, that there, there's an awareness to kind of how silly and strange it is, which which yeah. makes it a, a winning combination in my eyes. Mm. I mean, I can't say anything because over at the same time in Britain, we were making the fucking Carry On films, and they're absolute drag. So. Yeah. Our, our version of raunchy comedy is usually painfully, and this is the key thing here. Um, and then why I kind of not not like I have any authority to give Tim a pass, but I, why I would say actually you know like maybe you should watch it, make a decision yourself. It's inoffensive. Yes, it's hypersexualized, and yes, it's like the idea of like she's you know <laughs> literally fucks everything. It seems. Um, <laughs> And there's a lot of almost there's a lot there's kind of that, that bisexual chemistry with the female antagonist as well. So there's like there's some some stuff going on there that's quite interesting. The female antagonist is Anita Pallenberg. Like I'm pretty sure she had sexual chemistry with everyone. That's incredibly accurate and very true. Yeah. Um. But the difference is it doesn't have that. Uh, how can I phrase it? The uh, condescending homophobic racist say it's, it's, it's like oh no this is this is just like literally anything that moves um, <laughs> um and it for that it being the great equalizer of the film kind of means it has aged reasonably well also there's a really good scene this is gonna sound so porny um uh, she's undressing oh. in zero gravity yeah that's ba- basically the opening scene yeah but the zero gravity scene it's really well done it's really well shot. Yeah, it's it's uh, for 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 at the time, it's an incredibly good kind of recreation. Uh, yeah, clever stuff. Yeah, um, of of what was clearly just shot from above, so that it looks like she's floating in midair. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but done at the same time very cleverly and with kind of 
uh, as she kind of disrobes, like the the odd, like her clothing kind of like flies away and floats away in this, um, for at the time, like a a reasonably good imitation of what zero gravity is like. (laughs) Yeah. In a time when, let's face it, space travel, we haven't got to, we as a society, as a people, as a as a species, hadn't got to the moon at that point yet. We were obviously thinking about space in the future, but we hadn't got there yet, so the idea of space travel is still, you know, it's, it's still early days stuff, as yeah. it were. Yeah. But it's also worth mentioning that um, uh, for, for, for more knowledgeable film individual, this is a Dino De Laurentiis film, and, and his films kind of, to be fair, have that seedy, grubby kind of undertone every now and again so if you know him you kind of know what you're getting into yeah yeah uh, i think this was um he made this just after making danger diabol uh diabolique yeah, um, I think so, yeah which is is quite similar mm. and um yeah he uh, it's got his grubby paws on a lot of stuff around that period yeah yeah <laughs> it's not something i've seen but i've definitely heard and and seen a lot of the influence going through various pop culture and, and like you said the, the cosplay scene of Barbarella is kind of infamous at this point and yeah I feel like I really need to dive into the kind of sixties sci-fi ridiculousness a bit more so something something I need in my life. Which, which platform <laughs> did you find this on, Tim? Uh, that is currently streaming on Amazon. Amazon Ooh, nice. Prime. Mm. And uh, speaking of remakes and stuff guess what they tried to do a bunch of barbarella remakes as well oh, because, oh they did yeah because we, we they hate everything to do with pop culture and everything needs to be remade and nothing is original anymore so originally they tried to do one in the 2000s with robert rodriguez directing starring rose mcgowan yeah okay. we, we will we will have to come back to this because when we eventually do a sin city 2 episode the first thing mm. that's gonna have to go for sin city to work is him stop fucking around with barbarella and make sin city 2 work at the time so people actually yeah. enjoy it and then move on and then try barbarella but sorry yeah and and preferably i i don't want to see his version of barbarella i i, no I think shit. this is one of these films that absolutely like it's such a it exists as such a moment in history yeah um and you a remake would just feel extremely odd unless it's by yeah. bong joon ho <laughs> so they tried to do it and uh, it was uh purvis and wade who were the modern bond writers mm. uh were on board to write it as well uh rodriguez left the project and all this kind of stuff and eventually they tried to do speaking of amazon a tv series uh, okay. a few years ago Again, Purvis and Wade were signed on to write. And uh, if you could think of somebody, you know, who would bring some some interesting kind of indie cinema kind of uh, gravitas to it, maybe, oh, let's pick, I don't know, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn? Sure. Oh, like, okay. What the fuck? Um, so, yeah, apparently they that was the plan. Um, and then eventually uh, Refn was just like, no, I, I can't do this. <laughs> Certain things... Certain things should not be remade or, or something along good, those lines. Good, good, like, good. Well done, Nicholas. Well said. <laughs> Someone's <laughs> talking sense into these fucking yeah. executives who just want to remake everything. You need a wacky European to make it work, I think. Yeah. Oh, Lars von Trier. There we go. That'll be a Oh, oh God. God. <laughs> Lars von Trier's Barbara. It gets really, really sexy and really gross and weird and dark as well. Gasper no ways, Barbara. Oh my God, what are we doing? Oh God. Uh, before before we ruin this film, Jack, do you want to take us through your next choice? 
Certainly. Uh, going from Amazon, and I'll also tie it into a Netflix release as well, because that's weird, but this is just how this worked out. Uh, two of my, again, favorite films as a kid and as a teenager, growing up watching lots of martial arts and stuff like that with my dad. We've talked about The Crow and Brandon Lee. Let's go back to his dad and Bruce Lee, because on Amazon yes. Prime, in 1972's A Fist of Fury, which is my personal favorite, mm-hmm. and on Netflix, 1973's Enter the Dragon, which is the classic, mm. the all-time great classic. You need to see this film that has basically influenced every martial arts film and video <laughs> game ever since kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I particularly want to touch on Fist of Fury, because I assume people have probably seen Enter the Dragon. Have you seen Kill Bill? You you've seen some Bruce Lee influences. Have you seen? Have you played? Have, have you played a Tekken game? You can see the Bruce Lee influences. Like you can see all these different things, and you've got um, all that. Like Tower of Death is the the Kill Bill suit, and the Enter the Dragon is the the nunchucks scene. You probably know that, and uh, all the kind of influential stuff. But Fist of Fury was always one that particularly resonated with me because it tackled the. Japanese Chinese conflict that was happening at the time, which is something I knew absolutely nothing about going into that as a, I don't know, probably like 13, 14, 15, something like that. And my dad was kind of introducing me to martial arts and, and getting me into those kind of films. And I was so used to like, oh yeah, he's going to kick Chuck Norris's ass. And yeah, that's all cool and stuff. And I was like, now let's talk about a conflict that's been going on for hundreds of years in the, in the East. I was like, oh, hmm, okay. Like, oh, they're they're treating him like a dog and being super racist. So that's what racism looks like. That's that's real gross. I'm like, I'm growing up as this sheltered little white kid in Norfolk. Like yeah. I don't know what I don't know what like conflicts happen in it was the first time I'd seen racism that wasn't like white and black people portrayed in cinema, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. It was really my mm. first concept of like, oh, racism exists outside of the Western world and, and they're are other conflicts that are happening in other countries and in other cultures that I'm completely unaware of in terms of history and stuff. And Fist of Fury is just a fantastic... like it, it, I think it really shows off Bruce Lee's acting chops as well as his martial arts skills. And, and it really allows him to explore that. And apparently he's one of the ones he kind of had more input on with the character as well and having his, yeah. his experiences growing <laughs> up as a as a young, you know, Chinese guy and him being this kind of having to deal with these horrible, horrible things that unfortunately young Asian people went through in the, you know, the fifties and sixties and things like that. And yeah, it's a fantastic portrayal of that kind of, uh, that kind of thing. And if you haven't seen it, I very much recommend, you know, like I said, you probably know other Bruce Lee films, but this might be one that a lot of people haven't seen. And it's, really something special in my opinion i have basically the exact same story (laughs) (laughs) i i was getting into martial arts films um kung fu sort of stuff as well and and uh rap and wu-tang and stuff at the same thing about 13 14 years old and what sparked it is the weirdest fucking thing so um, rather than um, uh, than Jack's dad having like a mentor saying you should watch this, I was very unguided with it, and that's how I got into like the, the 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 whole world of Eastern cinema. And it partly started with with history. This is going to be a, okay. This is old man Matt, sit down, kids. 
1997, I was 13 years old. Precocious little wanker, but you know, whatever. Um, and Britain, Great Britain, was handing over, as it's officially known as, Hong Kong back to China, sort of. What a and weird I, phrase. Yeah, and I was like, I don't get it, Mum. And I was watching the television, I, I don't understand what this is. I don't really get the significance because I'm a fucking idiot child. And then it's like, oh, no, it's a really important thing. And, um, you know, given that sort of glossed over, my mum doesn't always know the exact fucking answer. Of course she doesn't. Why would she? Um, but, you know, your parents are a wealth of knowledge at the time. Therefore, you go to them for all of answers. Um, and, and I said, I don't understand what's the... And of course, the classic, you know, little little white kid racism although growing up in london with you know with multicultural diversity around me still you know you you say ignorant things without realizing and i'm like i don't get it and i say oh well hong kong is kind of part of china always has been in terms of a mainland but it's you know and they give you like a brief explanation for a kid you're like oh okay it's like so japan and china's like the same as well it's like no 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 that's 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 no they they like saying france and england is the same but they don't think that and you're like okay doesn't help that england is the united kingdom Wales, England, Scotland. It's very confusing for a kid, full stop. But I was like, oh, okay, I sort of understand. And then from there, got into the idea that that Hong Kong is not the same as China, but kind of is the same as China. Yeah. Very much child mindset. And then I got into Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee that way. I was like, okay, they like, and this is again very stupidly simplistic they like fighting they're very good at fighting they're the best fighters in the world and you get that sort of almost childlike rush of this is everything now and you start absorbing as much as you can and the problem is that you kind of can't because all the things that are involving in these things or surrounding these things are not appropriate so for example all these films like Fist of Fury Way of the Dragon all that stuff they're fucking 18 and 15 over here they're very violent in in Fist of Fury people's eyes are fucking torn out um, yeah and as, they are as Jack mentioned <laughs> <laughs> Jack mentioned that the idea that the, the Chinese Japanese uh, relations and things like that and I didn't understand because again and it sounds awful because I I mean I have no problem admitting that you know past um, ignorances of a child I was like I don't get it why are they being racist to each other they're the same and that, that classic I awful one. It's the same like, thing. Yeah, and it's it's like, and, and as Jack said, the culture in Britain was very much like white versus black is racism. Everything else is fine. You don't get white versus white racism. Things like oh, like Eastern European versus Central European, or something like, or or, or it, it, in in a way, Black Panther. The idea between American African Americans and Africans. It's it's a very different thing. And there's also Africa's huge. There's race between African nations. It's the thing you don't think at all in your head and it's like oh yeah there's there's hatred everywhere um anyway point is that i got in the same way and i absorbed all this stuff like literally hoovered it all up and it was fantastic and again fist of fury is standout genius so fucking good enter the dragon is fantastic as well both are genuinely phenomenal films um and as i said same as jack it was a case of it introduced me to the idea that oh hang on these two nations who i thought were kind of the same thing have this very very deep and difficult conflicted history and this film really doesn't get, it's not a history lesson it's people punching people but it's <laughs> it the way it ends especially without spoiling anything it's 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 kind of striking and haunting and you're like this is this is really fucking and again rather than watching one or two of these things and thinking they're old and bored i dug deeper and deeper into these films and I wanted to know more about these people and everything that was going on. And that is a true testament of the power of these sort of uh, film and cinema. But you get to think like, I want to know more. I need to know more. 
I want to know what's going on. I want this this whole realm of 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 experiences that has been hitherto closed off to me. I now want to know everything. That kind of thing. Yeah, I I don't have much to add. It's it's dope <laughs> as hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need to know, folks. That's all you need. Bruce Lee, dope as hell. Seriously. And the fucking <laughs> choreography and his moves and everything just... I mean, we talk about, you know, some choreography looking ropey and shit these days. Like, oh, that looks a bit dumb. Fuck you. Lee still stands oh, head, shoulder above everybody. Up. And again, we're talking about, uh, I know we're going to talk about this a lot because they're older films, but they're so influential. They so... They have been like sort of transcended movies and become inherent in pop culture in the way we consume it and i know i've said this so many times before the fact that i grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s i experienced a lot of this era of stuff some like the 50s to the 80s basically through parodies and satire that was happening in the 90s and the early 2000s through stuff like the simpsons and family guy and all this kind of like and snl skits and all that kind of stuff I would I have seen more episodes of The Simpsons that reference the things than the actual original things that they're referencing. <laughs> and maybe I'm aware that they're a reference now that I'm older, but at the time I was like, I don't know what that is. Or, you know, that kind of thing. And I don't really clock onto it until later on. But, yeah, I think, I think Enter the Dragon and Fist of Fury and even, you know, Game of Death and Way of the Dragon and, and Bruce Lee's other stuff really... It's a pretty short filmography as well because he it died is. so young. <laughs> like Enter the Dragon was his final, essentially his final movie released post posthumously. But you've got like Tower of Death, as I mentioned earlier, and all this kind of stuff, where it's sort of completed from yeah. Getting with Tower of Death is Game of Death two, but it was completed from unused scenes from the original and some mm. other things from some other films, and it's a bit janky and all over the place. But Fist of Fury, Where the Dragon, Game of Death, and Enter the Dragon, those four films. I just like genre defining, cinema defining films yeah. for me as a kid, and I just, yeah, absolutely adored them and loved them. It it doesn't help that uh, uh, nobody calls them this now. Obviously, there's more uh, at the time released in America where they would do these, you know, janky fucking dubs. But Big Boss, Big Boss is one of those first ones that he, um, that, that Bruce That's Lee, his first film really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but it was known as Fists of Fury, and. <laughs> When Fist of Fury came out, they're like, oh, uh, we'll call this one The Chinese Connection. And you're like, oh. Fuck off. That's, yeah, no. And then fi- and also Way of the Dragon then became known as Return of the Dragon. And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Stop doing this. <laughs> and then finally with Game of Death, they're like, right, let's just call it Game of Death because that's what it's fucking called. Um, but yeah. The less we talk about the weird translations and, oh, fuck and yeah. Yeah, adaptations better, yeah. and stuff, the better, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, Matt. What's on your what's next on your list of recommendations? Netflix. Let's stay oh, in the okay. east. Let's stay in the east. Um let's go 1979. Just just in there. Just in our little uh, definition of this uh uh discussion. I'm going for an animated film. Um Hayao Miyazaki's first film, his debut film. Amazing. That that's the Studio Ghibli people guy if you that's correct cared. yes uh, Miyazaki's the guy uh, who um, set up Studio Ghibli and this is pre-Ghibli um, this was just a Japanese animation so there was a TV series based on a manga called uh, Lupin the uh, Third spelled Lupin but Lupin is the technical correction pronunciation because French because French um, and 
they made this film based on the Monkey Punch sort of comic, and he's he's like a master thief, Arsène Lupin, or Arsène Lupin, and um, he's uh, sort of a. If you take the original character, he's a bit of a lecherous, raunchy, cool bad boy, gentleman spy slash thief, mostly thief. He's a very entertaining, silly character. This is a very for lack of a better word, and this is what gets a bit tricky here. What I'm about to recommend is a film that is unequivocally um, a, a sort of masterpiece of cinema, exceptionally well done. However, it's also quite bad. Um, <laughs> it is, first and foremost, a terrible fucking adaptation. Um, a lot of the character traits and quirks aren't present. They're glazed over entirely. It's It, it trades off a lot of things like... Um, the more adult side of things, a bit more of the maturity for slapstick humor and comedy. And you're like, well, then again, we'll get to that maybe a little bit later, but how that does not always work out. Um, and the story is quite, it's, I hate to say this the story is stupid. and doesn't make any fucking sense. Um, <laughs> if you actually start thinking about the logistics of, um, of this movie. Yeah. So the film itself is called the castle of Cagliostro. Um, and, it was written in 1979, and it is... I mean, it's like the crow, the man, the crow, the bird, the crow. Cagliostro is the name of the town and also the count and the princess. And you're like, Excellent. right, right. And that's like, and Cagliostro, the town, is ruled by Cagliostro, the count, but it's also got a princess. And it's like, and, and you, the more you watch the film, I don't want to give too much away about the ins and outs of it, but the point is that if you watch the story and there's a whole developed story about, oh, you know, the bad guy's going to marry the princess because then he can take over and rule, except he already rules. What does this do? This does nothing. I don't understand. Um, but all of that is absolutely irrelevant because this film is spectacularly fun. It is stupidly engrossing. Um, there is a quote, which is the opening car chase scene is one of the greatest car chases ever put to cinema. And that was said by Steven fucking Spielberg. Um, and it <laughs> inspired him for some of his Indiana Jones car chase sequences. Oh, and the, and the Tintin car chase, but uh, Tintin. Um, but and, the point is... It's, uh, it's also done in a Fiat 500 as well. Just it to... is, it is. Which adds <laughs> to the humour. Um... And the slapstick's very good. The, the the thing is that Miyazaki was not really, and he always always has been, not really a storyteller in the sense of central, straightforward narrative prose. Um, he he more relies on things like uh, of storyboarding. He he'd be a designer who'd come up with these ideas for um, these cool scenes and uh, set pieces, and then sort of thread them together. Which is usually a very sloppy, horrible way of making movies. It's terrible, but because they're so cool, it doesn't matter. They're fantastic. I mean, Isao Takahata would be the guy who also founded Ghibli, and he's the real storyteller. He's the guy who, who who's crafted some genuinely crushing fucking stories um, and beautiful artwork. But the the fun, character-driven stuff is where Miyazaki really thrives. And uh, there's a lot of tropes in this movie that have sort of carried on through a lot of things and we talk about influence. Um, Lupin is scaling up a building and then he's he's sort of running down the building trying to gather speed. And as he does, he's he loses control and just his legs go too fast for him. And then, you know, it's the kind of thing you, when you see it, go, I've seen that a thousand times. Like, yeah, you didn't see it before this, though. Um, and 
it's yeah really well acted the the animation is absolutely fucking stunning it's got so much of that weird semi steampunky kind of contraption stuff going on there's, there's like a gyrocoptery helicopter thing that's really distinctly miyazaki there's an amazing fight sequence that takes place in a um a sort of clockwork tower effectively and i did uh, one little fact for you i didn't realize that inspired the whole th- even like the the, the denouement how it closes with the 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 clock hands crushing a person it's it's kind of like a kid's movie it's kind of not a kid's movie um that was all recreated and inspired in an episode of the animated series of batman um it was yes and it's like this is just insane because you wouldn't you wouldn't think it um but no, Lupin the Third in in Casa Cagliostro is really fun, really really um, iconic in a way, and it's very much how you know how Japan thought Europe is and or was, <laughs> not entirely accurate, not entirely wrong, um, but it holds up fantastically. It's still really really good, and that sort of seventies era of Japanese animation with Gundam starting to come out on TV and Lupin on TV, but this is the film version things. It's just. Yeah, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. And it's a good also gateway to get into anime in general, but the Ghibli it's it's now considered a Ghibli film. Um if in in you know, in all the rights. If you if you buy a Blu-ray of or this, it's likely gonna have a big Ghibli stamp on it. Because even though it's not released under the studio, in the same way that uh, Norsica wasn't released as a studio Ghibli film, it basically fucking is. Um and uh yeah. I I I have you guys seen it at all? Uh, I I haven't. I think it's one of those ones where I've seen clips from it, and yeah. I've I think uh, and and you know we mentioned this in terms of the martial arts films. I think it's is it marketed some places as just Loop in the Third. I think it might be yes. Yeah, I think I've I've heard to it referred m- more like that. Um, although you know it might be that they're talking about the series or whatever. But mm, I mm. I've definitely seen bits and pieces of this um including some like sort of clips of just like look at how amazing this animation is mm. you know um just kind of showcasing and you know as soon as you start thinking about it you're like wait how the fuck do they how the fuck do you draw that and make that look smooth yeah you know, without just you know sort of capturing it on camera and then translating it mm. um and um, I assume this has gone up on Netflix as kind of part of the the big uh, Ghibli oh, it is, yeah. that yeah. they've had in the past few months. Um, yeah, I, I've been meaning to go back and kind of watch some of the earlier stuff that I haven't seen. Yeah, um, because they 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 they're amazing. Yeah, uh, just for a time piece comparison, because Ghibli is always now known as the the Japanese Disney, and I don't think that's really fair <laughs> because they're doing things that are a much much better, and also they started much later, so they're in a very different position. But in terms of animation looking smooth and all that sort of stuff, in America, nineteen seventy seven, you had The Rescuers. It's a perfectly serviceable film, but it still looks very hand drawn and it's and that's fine because it is and some of the animation with the with the bayou boats and that sort of stuff um yeah it it looks fine not this stuff this stuff genuinely looks utterly breathtaking still yeah i'm i have delved deep into the the ghibli archives and i have actually seen uh i don't think i saw it i'm trying to think the first time i saw it i'm pretty sure i saw because as you know, Matthew, and as much as you hate me, I tend to watch dubs over subs, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of hate. Ooh, 
wanker! You get a lot of hate. <laughs> no, no, the dub sub war is fine. I think as long as you're watching the film, you're watching the film. Um, yeah. yeah. Having said that, I saw the early 2000s version of it with Solid Snake himself, David Hater, yeah. voicing Lupin, and it's fucking weird, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. It is a weird dub. It's not terrible, but that just feels like a really weird choice of, yeah, it's got yeah. the guy who plays Solid Snake to to voice. It almost feels like they they couldn't, I think it was something to do with like a union clash or something, and they ended, he had to do it under a different name, and it was a whole thing. Mm. And yeah, I'm I've not really I'm I'm very aware of the character just because he's such an iconic kind of manga character in mm. general. And yeah, yeah, that I saw it many years ago, but I haven't seen it recently. And maybe I should go back and trawl through the the Ghibli archives that are now available. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a property that's been around for ages. There was a one that came out recently that I still haven't seen because I, I love the animation look of it. I thought, oh. It's very smooth CGI kind of animation um, called Lupin Third, the first. I want to say um, f- first, the not third, first. The first, not, not <laughs> the our, our friends at the first have, have been involved in the making of that uh, <laughs> of the film. No, the the first, um, and uh, it's a uh, Takashi oh, Yamazaki. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just just from the, how it looks. It looked great. They also did a live action one in 2014. So it's been a thing that Japan have gone back to so many times, but it's never really hit that same note, in my opinion. It's always come like the reviews have always been like, yeah, three out of five. It's fine. And that's unfortunate, in my opinion, because I think there's a lot to offer there. Mm. Tim, what's your third selection, Tim? Second. Tim. <laughs> What's your second selection, Tim? Uh, so I'm t- I'm taking us back to martial arts. Oh, this has been go. our little little slice of uh, Eastern cinema this this round. Clearly, mm. um, and you mentioned uh, the Wu Tang Clan. Yeah, earlier. I did. I know where you going. Uh, I have gone for on Netflix currently available is the Thirty Sixth Chamber of Shaolin, uh, which obviously famously gave its name to one of their albums um and it's just it's uh 1978 so it's it's post bruce lee um mm. but very much obviously he was uh, by that time kind of filming stuff for much more for western audiences whereas this is kind of produced largely you know obviously they they knew that this by that time would sell to western audiences but i think yeah. it's kind of much more uh rooted in you know, Chinese cinema at the time and stuff. Um, and it's, it's kind of rooted in, like we said, like uh, historical conflicts. You know, this is a historical one uh, that's yep. set uh, dealing with um, some of uh, the Tartars and things like that. Uh, it's, it's kind of uh, set up as the, the enemies at the beginning. It's a really interestingly structured film um, because it is essentially... And, and, you know, this is a common thing with a lot of Kung Fu films um it's you get about half an hour of hey look at these bad guys uh they're bad and then you get uh an hour and 10 minutes of training <laughs> yeah uh, and then you get 10 minutes of and then he came back and he beat the bad guys yeah <laughs> um 
But this is is like the platonic ideal of that formula. Um, it's uh, an astonishing like it. Um, it's uh, Gordon Liu as the protagonist, um, who is called. Let me remind myself. Sante. Um, Sante. Yeah. yeah. Um, who was kind of a, a an actual one of these sort of robin hood kind of figures where it's like was mm. he real was he not yeah uh shaolin uh martial artists um he uh is is astonishing uh in this film uh it opens up with just footage of him kind of performing martial arts routines um at the start just kind of in front of these plain backgrounds and just the his skill um is is astonishing and then but he's also completely able to sell this guy who you know starts off not knowing anything um kind of comes in as this this wounded refugee uh to the shaolin temple uh who is kind of planning revenge on you know his uh, the 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 general who has attacked his town and um is kind of basically occupying it and killed his father and killed his friends um and he is he is so able to sell the kind of the process of learning these skills and progressing through said well the 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 35 chambers of shaolin as they start out um and we watch him kind of develop and grow and it's such a a grueling um training process and you know whenever you've seen these montages of you know ah this character getting better better at martial arts this is what they're harking back to in my mind you know i'm sure that there are examples before this but this is so influential um that this is this is kind of what they're always paying homage to Mm. um and then and i think you know just um uh in the words of of bruce lee the emotional content um, is is a really interesting idea of him talking about how he wants the to take the principles of Shaolin and kind of teach it to people who aren't Shaolin monks and who are out in the community because mm. at this this time it was it was this sort of very um, isolated you know if you wanted to learn this stuff you had to dedicate your whole life to it. And, you know, if you were a Shaolin monk, that's just what you were. And he's sort of saying, well, if the people who I knew had had some of these skills, we might have been able to resist this kind of uh, despotic government that has come in. And so the 36th chamber of the Shaolin is actually is the one that he establishes that is there to as as almost, you know, community outreach, uh, to put (laughs) it uh, far far more plainly than it deserves. He's a Shaolin outreach officer. Exactly. Yeah. uh, which I, I think is a kind of fascinating like arc and and uh, a kind of moral of the story of you know saying you know these these skills are all well and good but you know the the how you apply them to you know your community is really what matters um, which is classic kung fu idiot ideology yes um and uh gordon Liu, Obviously, to to a lot of people, he's best known. He shows up in Kill Bill twice. Mm, yes, um, he is Johnny Mo, who is the leader of the Crazy Eighty Eight, mm. uh, and has that cool bamboo sword thing uh, in the big Crazy Eighty Eight fight. And then he is also probably more notably 
Pai Mei, where he puts um, the bride through her own grueling kung fu training sequence. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's uh, at at no point does she have to um, have ar- uh, knives strapped to her arms while she carries water up a hill uh, <laughs> and can't can't let them down because otherwise she'll stab herself in the side. So um, thirty sixth <laughs> chamber wins out for me. Yeah, yeah, there's there's so many things in that film that are fucking great. It, it is it is considered one of the greatest martial arts films of all time, um, but also a kind of unknown one, which is a bit weird. Um, there's a great <laughs> teaching about uh, training his eyes of all things, and there's like these burning logs by the side of his face, and if he looks, you know, with his eyes only trying to follow back and forth, if he looks with his head more, though, he'll burn his cheeks. It's it's genius. Um, but again, as I said, with the with the nature of of Bruce Lee. This is where I started getting into rap culture as well, and I got really into the Wu Tang Clan, and it's like <laughs> Wu Tang and Shaolin. This film specifically go together so perfectly because obviously the Shaolin versus Wu Tang is a is a film, um, and there are so many interviews with with uh, RZA where he talks about this and and just the idea that he and ODB would get out of school and stuff and just go in these really shit rundown theaters um, and get these really dark you know uh, violent films. And um, just watch this really, and he said he said he said it's so interesting because it's it is the the, the principal natures of the the kung fu films and the, and this martial arts movies was the nature of brotherhood and community as as Tim mentions, and the idea that you everything is a weapon if you train yourself, but you have a brotherhood and that's what's important. And he that's how he saw his um family and friends and everyone around him and, and everyone watched what these things and the Shaw Brothers movies in Hong Kong is like the biggest uh production company in Hong Kong um were making these just fantastic really high quality films um and I'm I, oh, I don't know what age I was when I first ended up finding this one because again a bit tricky to hold up in Britain at the time for me um but I loved it it was the perfect sort of adventure story of of as Tim said everything uh the formula's there but it's 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 classically here is the discipline here's how to apply the discipline here's what makes you a, in a weird way a good person now i did a bit of research beforehand because i was thinking to myself i know i'd seen the first one i loved it i couldn't remember if i'd seen any of the follow-ups and we'll definitely have to come back to it in sequelizer's future because there are two follow-ups i haven't seen the third one admitted but i have seen the second one and it took a more of a comedy turn i didn't like that yeah i i I haven't seen the follow-ups. I, I was aware that the follow-up was a lot more comic. Yeah. and The third yeah, one even did, more did so. not have the reputation. Yeah. There's a bit of a Beverly Hills Cop, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a similar, similar kind of lineage, yeah. You've it, got Gordon playing the same character, Gordon Liu playing the same character, but it does get very kind of silly. Plays, and his role is reduced in the third one as well. Yeah, I've seen the he, second one, Return to the Six Chamber but I've not seen Disciples of the 36th Chamber, which is the third one, which is in the 80s, which is weird. Yes. It's very 80s. And a solid recommendation, and really, I mean, again, the three martial arts films that have been mentioned so far are genuinely all chef kiss good. They're fantastic movies. classics. And they they hold up fantastically well. There's some stuff you watch and go, holy shit, because, again... It's so much of it, you can't get around it. It's mostly, it is in-camera stuff. It's a bit of wire work, obviously, but there are still things like, yep, that's a man kicking through some hoops of fire. It's just 
brutal and brilliant and fun. And yes, okay, you got the swords are so very, very shiny. Um, <laughs> To the point they look kind of ridiculous, but it doesn't matter. And the sound effects are are iconic because the Shaw Brothers stock of sound effects, that kind of like classic, iconic thing to get sampled again for me, musically speaking, sampled over and over and over again. And the and the sort of classic uh, sound bites you'd hear in so many songs, um, you know, a chess match. It's like a sword fight. That kind of, you know, <laughs> amazing, ridiculous dubbing that we all feel so... Um, somehow, even if you've never seen a martial arts film, you kind of know what to expect. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, goddamn great, great choice. And also the the, the kind of... Uh, the the weapon that he has this uh, very Sticks. pivotal... Uh, the weapon that he uses during a very pivotal moment uh, is the... Th- the three-piece staff, which is basically like a kind of like quarter staff, had a baby with a nunchucks, <laughs> and it's it's one of it's such a fucking blokey thing to say. It's one of my favourite kung fu weapons um, <laughs> because it's it's uh, it, it's so versatile, and watching him use it is is astonishing the way he he moves with it. It's again, it's the classic skilled master, isn't it? It's like you think it's be the sharpest thing in the room that could be the best thing. It's like no, this weapon that looks like it's not even a weapon, which can only a certain master can wield. <coughs> yeah, it's it's. I can I can totally understand where you're coming from with your with your uh, affection for it. So, Jack, do you want to give us your your final choice? Certainly, I'm going to go classic comedy this time from the 1970s, a double bill of Monty Python films. 1975's The Holy Grail and 1979's, and my personal favourite, The Life of Brian. And again, something I totally grew up on as a kid. Both of my parents are huge Monty Python fans. I grew up listening to the the radio shows and and watching the films and all this kind of stuff. And I've already talked about how influential and how parodied and (laughs) satirised these two films have been since then. And you know, just take the moments from like always look on the bright side of life, life of Brian, or the 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 knights that say ni in Holy Grail, or the Black Knight, or um, you know, he's a very naughty boy. Like these moments just kind of transcend the films and become so ingrained in pop culture. And I'm guessing every single listener probably gets those references, but maybe hasn't gone and seen the whole film and I think they deserve to be seen in full. They really, really should go back and see the kind of origins of a lot of uh, things that have been referenced and and joked about since then. And yeah, that these two in particular are my two favorite Monty Python films, and I think they hold up really well. I I personally, this is a very bold and very oh, divisive here statement. Here we go. But fuck <laughs> it. Here comes Matt. I don't get people that don't get Python. Um, oh, interesting. Because um, I, 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 okay. So here's the thing. I grew up in an Irish Catholic household, so of course Monty Python was the devil because they made the life of Brian, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, no, 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 no. It's 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 not very appropriate. And then I finally watched it as a teenager. And I was like, this is fucking funny. It's not not only is it really fucking funny, but understanding religious side of things, I I sort of tried to explain to my mum, and she did the classics like, no, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't care, don't care. Um, but I was like, mum, it's not about Jesus. It's like no, no, about no. Brian, it's, it's not about Jesus. It's like literally, <laughs> Jesus in the first scene, and they they're, they're at the wrong door, and they turn to the other place. It's literally just someone who's like parallel. 
Um, but no, um, I I remember I, I, such a beautiful sign of my maturity happening within a couple of seconds. So life, I won't spoil the ending as it were, but at the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I was like, oh, what? That's It's over? <laughs> Fucking, that's bullshit. And then after a couple of minutes, I was like, Nah, that's the best. That's brilliant. That's the best ending for that. That's really funny. It, it. But I'm, I'm glad I effectively got it in that moment, as it were. Um, and it's, it's very strange because I love quirky, absurdist humor. Um, I like it from an ensemble troupe. I like the visual styles. I like that it has transitioned from. T it's like imagine, if in my opinion, it's like if the Mighty Boosh was actually funded properly and managed to go on and make Mighty Boosh <laughs> films and stuff. But there are more of them, and you could have a very distinct visual style, very unique, quirky, quirky, quotable sort of things, and really culturally relevant, but aware of things and absurdist. And the absurdist is the key bit here because I think without sounding too arrogant, it's something that British humour does quite well. Um, we will just invent random nonsense words and phrases and situations and project them. And also, well, lampooning our own history and our own culture as a, as a people. Like, the nature of the... I, I, personally, Holy Grail for me is my is my peak Python. Fucking fantastic. Um, love the others, but this is the real the real one for me. And it's it's the... It's there's so many nods that you clearly can tell they've, they've grown up in a certain environment hearing certain stories and just taking them to task, really. Nothing is off off the gun. I mean, it, it, it's, it's impressive how much they get away with on a budget of kind of nothing, really. Um, and and Jones's directing each time is, is really good. Them playing multiple roles stupidly well. And as Jack said, so, so, so quotable. Um, and so funny. Um, and the fact is, when you hear about all the stuff behind the scenes, those be guys being like at each other's throats constantly um, yeah. and battling ego and stuff like that. And I mean, I know George Harrison mentioned in the past about how he always thought the, the, the unique, quirky, silly, rebellious attitude of the Beatles somehow mystically transported into Python. And he saved a lot of the Python productions by funneling his own money into Python. Um <laughs> Had a good friendship with Eric Idle and stuff like that, and yeah, I th I genuinely don't get people who don't get Python. It's it's such a, I mean, it's again these films are before my time, before I was born. I shouldn't have anything to say about them, but there's something wonderful about the grandiose, over the top, bombastic score, the 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 mist rolling in of these planes and a castle in the background, and there's a clippy clop of fucking coconuts. And King Arthur says, hello, I'm King Arthur, King of the Britons. And it's like, this is fucking fantastic. It's a bunch <laughs> of men pretending to be boys, being silly and say, you're going to cut this tweet out of the heading. It's so stupid. And it's those two films, I think, are genuinely people's introductions. I don't think people will tend to watch Meaning of Life or Navison Completely Different or even Flying Circus. I think they watch one of those films and then start unraveling all the all that it has to offer, as it were. Yeah, I think it's 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 interesting. You you kind of mentioned the mighty Boosh as as trying to find something of kind of present day equivalent, and I think the thing is is that I can't think of someone or, or a group that has managed to be as absurdist while also being as on point satirically. I agree. Um, I, agree. I think there's especially in terms of British comedy, you get a lot that's that's kind of stupid and silly. 
and absurdist and you get stuff that's really great satire but to be able to combine those two is incredibly tricky and these films do it so flawlessly um that you you sort of wonder yeah you sort of you sort of it's you do think it's it's that kind of lightning in a bottle type chemistry that you know obviously was pretty destructive and difficult to work in but produced some amazing comedy mm. i was thinking the only one i can think of that came reasonably close other than my bush with barrett and and uh no fielding would be reese shearsmith uh mark gattis and steve pemberton with um uh league of gentlemen that level of just 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 off the wall fucking bizarre and going from things like Lee Gentleman to Psychoville to uh, Inside Number Nine, that kind of stuff like that. It's like, oh yeah, I think there's a lot here. But again, or maybe even again, every the, because British uh, Reeves and Mortimer, there's there's so many bits of it, but not in the same way, and that's mm. the problem. I think. League of Gentlemen's a good good shout. Actually, they they do some very clever kind of satire stuff in amongst the just pitch black dark absurdism yeah equally quotable i think yes yes very much so <laughs> so yeah an an excellent choice jack i can I, I mean it's, it's it's a bit of an obvious one i feel it's a bit of jack's a bit of an all-time classic six you can't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> my top three of six <laughs> so that's the end of my list mr stogden what is your final choice for classic films available on streaming services? So we've done the 50s, we've done the 70s, time to go back pretty goddamn far. We're going back to 1931, nearly 100 years ago. Um, here's the thing. Um, on Amazon Prime, this is, okay, I've got my Netflix choice, I've got my Disney Plus choice, this is my Amazon choice. And Amazon Prime seems to be the one that has the most in, it, uh, well, obviously Disney Plus in a way as well, but Amazon Prime had a, a pretty good range, to be honest, um, of of choices I could make. Prime was was pretty good, so good job, Amazon. You fucking wankers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we're not getting sponsored anytime soon by Amazon, but also, we, we you know, they're an ev- uh, necessary evil at times. Anyway, so... Fritz Lang. Fritz Lang is a German director who really shaped a lot of things. Um, he effectively shaped um, how science fiction progressed. He's arguably responsible for Metropolis. Metropolis, earlier. yeah. So he's responsible yeah. for Star Wars in a weird way because the the look of hell is very much influenced the look of C three PO. Um, he influenced pretty much everything in terms of how film noir is shot and looks. Uh, with with M and other releases, and um, he obviously also introduced me and the world to Peter Lorre, and Fritz Lang and Lorre are both German Jewish, and this is a this is a kind of key thing here. This is 1931, and the film is it just incredibly bold for what it tries to do, and I'm gonna do my best not to talk about it in terms of spoiling it, but I might end up kind of spoiling it because I have to talk about it. Um, and by the way, I should point out, three years later, both those gentlemen left Germany and fled to America and, and had great, huge Hollywood careers and such like that because obviously Germany turned into a fucking hellscape. But we talk about like how I, I, I bang on about how for the last 20 years, South Korea has been punching out some of the best cinema. Um, in the 30s and 20s, Germany was producing some of the absolute 
best cinema, hands down. Murnau and Lang alone. Um, so from Nosferatu to Dr. Caligari, sorry, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, The Golem and Metropolis, just so many fucking really powerful, amazing visual films. The whole German expressionist movement is, is so distinct. If you think of yourself, oh, I don't even know what that is. Google Caligari, you'll see it's this really stark black lines and things. And this then evolved into a more realistic look and approach in the 30s. And this is Fritz Lang's first sound film. It's only four years after Metropolis, but Christ, it feels leagues ahead. It it looks like a film from the 40s and 50s. It, it's, it's, I can't even think of a contemporary example where somebody has produced something that 10, 15 years later still looks like it's brand new. It's in terms of like, you know, the, the way evolution of technology. Anyway, so M, it's a fucking dark film. So sit the fuck down. So Peter Lorre <laughs> plays basically a child murderer. And there's this town this film is based in and this sort of a, 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 a tribe... A trinity of, of 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 individuals. You've got one which is the parents and the adults of the town who are terrified that kids going missing and being killed. You have also the children who are being protected. There's a kid. There's a kid who almost walks out into the street, and the police say, "No, no, 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 no I'll help you across the road." And they clearly care for their community. They care for their 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 elderly, their young, and that kind of thing. And again, considering how Germany ended up getting, that's very very different from you know at this point in time, uh, the Nazi party is like the 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 second largest party in the Reichstag. It's it's very much a good Germany, shall we say, that is on the verge of becoming the worst fucking Germany. Um, and the third side is the story of this fucking murderer. And it doesn't go so far as to make him sympathetic, but it tries to explain him. And again, for 1931, that's fucking crazy. Mm. Um, to, to think about a film where there's a child murderer and you're trying to get into his head and understand why he is the way he is. And the film almost says, maybe we shouldn't kill him. And so the best way I've heard it described is that there is the nature of a... Um, a treaty or a treaty, a paper, as it were, and the concept is you show, you set out your your introduction, then you have your evidence, and finally you have your summary, a kind of three act structure, effectively. This film kind of doesn't do that. It goes introduction, evidence, little bit more evidence, no conclusion. And you're like, what? Um, and that should be so unsatisfying. It should be so frustrating, but it's not. So being Fritz Lang's first sound film, sound is such a vitally important thing. Um, so Peter Lorre's character, so Beckett, Hans Beckett, the, the character, when he's killing someone, he's first introduced, this kid is playing with a ball and she's bouncing it playfully just off a sign that, you know, lists all the crimes that this murder has done. And his shadow covers in and says... That's a very nice ball you've got. And it's just like, oh, and Peter Laurie, he talks so high and there's just too kind and ball. It's, it's like, oh, it's all oh, creepy. And you don't see him. And the best thing then is when he's not on screen, he's whistling and he's whistling in the hall of the mountain king. And it becomes fucking terrifying because not only is it like a really childish, like it's like, oh, it's really playful. It's like, no, it's creepy. It's like he's hunting them. It's it's fucking terrifying. And then when like you know one kid runs up to her, hey Muti, and he runs up to her mother, it's like oh no, and the music sort of stops, and it's like ah okay, so we can't do it. And then as the film progresses, 
we learn that he's not just whistling it, he hears it in his head and it's a compulsion he can't shake. And it's just so good and it analyzes a murderer so well. But then the town eventually catch up with him and they bring him to a cellar and they effectively give him a, a shitty trial. And they're like, we're going to kill you. You're the worst person ever. You deserve to die. And he's like, I, and he again talks about mental health in the fucking 30s in Germany. And he says, wow. I can't help myself. I don't want to be this way. I would love to not be this way. And I have to stop. I said, we have to kill you. Is it, can you kill me? Are you allowed to kill me? Are you, can you do that? And then it poses this really interesting question. Do you have the right to kill someone? If you don't kill him, he will probably kill children. What do you do with him? And then what happens is the police come in and raid the whole thing. Like, right, this is a completely illegal witch hunt. What the fuck are you to be? Obviously, all the parents and the people of the town are paranoid, but this you can't rule by fear and you can't be judged and ruled by um, the mob, basically. You need government and rules and everything. And then he goes to an actual trial, but you never see the conclusion of the trial. The audience is supposed to have a conversation saying what they would do. And well, obviously we have to kill him. It's like, can't, I mean, he's mentally unstable. Can we not help him? It's like, well, what, what's to help? It's fucking amazing. And again, you have to put it in context of where it's being released in, in time and the things that are going on in Germany and what it's trying to say satirically. And then how both of those men being, let's face it, they, it sounds like I'm being flippant. I'm, I'm genuinely not being, but they would, would have literally been straight to a concentration camp because they are so prominent in the, like, you know, Jewish filmmakers, they, they would be a terrible, um, uh, propaganda use against the, the Nazi party. So they'd have to go. So, you know, them trying, it's like a last gasp before, everything goes to shit. Like, people, maybe we should try and be fucking better. We're a good society. We can do this. We shouldn't be led by these things. And it's like, nope, I've got to get the fuck out of here. Um, but M is a genuinely important movie. It's way, way ahead of its time. Um, we'll talk about, again, like, if 1927, Metropolis looks fantastic and it's still really fun. But it's very much a silent film. Um, then you get to 1931 and the deep contrast the blacks and the shadow and the and the lighting and the the just a couple of high angles just the idea of a camera being higher it's just a weird thing to see in the 30s um because again they were being they were pioneers that i mean i think it was myrna who was the first one to thought to move the camera with nosferatu it's like this camera is just stable if you can't if you know if you move it and you're trying to hand crank the camera it's going to fail mm. So inventing the dolly, as it were, all these bits and pieces come out of Germany and there are so important things. And the, the, I genuinely think Germany could have achieved, I mean, it did obviously achieve so much of a cinema, but because most of them went to America, but um, <laughs> uh, um, all, all the big, you know, noir films and things like that and, and the big Hollywood studio system, it's kind of big German names because they had to go somewhere. Um, but yes, um, I assume you guys haven't seen it. Correct. 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 Yes. Um, I was going to say I'd lend you a DVD, then realizing A, we're in lockdown, and B, I've just said it's on Amazon Prime. Um, <laughs> yeah, Peter Laurie's performance is amazing. There's one point where he's like, he's because he's paranoid, he's terrified, he's playfully just, there's, there's a nice little double scene where he plays with his face, just trying to like make a sad face, and and then he's later when he's trying so hard, he can hear a kid getting on a bus behind him or something like that, and he's trying so hard not to have the compulsion to think, I better murder her now. Um, and he's just playing with his face like, no, and that sort of thinking contemplative. It's just on so many levels, a brilliant movie. And again, I can't stress this enough. It's nearly a hundred fucking years old. 
and it's just as good That's as crazy. anything like i mean i think things like even like silence of the lambs wouldn't exist without this movie kind of thing i think that it's 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 vitally important and it, it understands the medium of what film can be it's like the first psychological thriller technically um and people get so paranoid and turn each other there's like a, a contemporary version sort of called the hunt um with mads mickelson a danish film except you never know if he is a paedophile or not or if it's just some sort of accusation from a kid you can never really tell but that's the thing again it's, it comes down to the audience to decide are we all paranoid are we what, what's happening here is this who we are as a people i'd be actually like you know that sort of like crucible style witch hunt but anyway mm, i I, yeah. I genuinely recommend it with you know of all the three films i recommended today i think this one is one like prioritize this one but it's also in black and white and it's got subtitles so good luck <laughs> i'm intrigued I'm, I'm i'm very intrigued and like i said i've seen metropolis so it'd be appropriate for me to see another lang film as well from a similar kind of era so again he, he in in metropolis he very much tried to do the whole i mean very very simple over the thing even says the idea is the head and that was i think the phrase the head and the heart needs the hand or something like that and the idea yeah. is that the two classes as it were the 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 ruling class and the, and the working class should work together to produce good things and they can do that and it, you know and this has the same sort of you know very clear very strong message but the the conclusions less ah and more oh <laughs> so tim um going from child murder what have you got to lift <laughs> our spirits well i'm also in the crime family but mm. a much fluffier more glamorous <laughs> crime <laughs> yeah, yeah uh i have gone with uh 1955's to catch a thief nice very nice uh a bit of classic uh hitchcock um it's probably one of his lesser works uh if if we're being honest oh yeah um it's 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 pretty fluffy um it's compared to some of the other kind of airtight plots uh that he made in his in his day it's like the actual kind of the crime element of it is i wouldn't say it's weak but it's 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 not in the leagues of you know some of his other work. Mm. Um, you know it's it's not strangers on a train kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know it's it's kind of fascinating that that this is old enough that you can have a cat burglar who's just called the cat. That's his nickname. <laughs> <That's> yeah. <it. laughs> um. Uh. But it is. It manages to to kind of combine a slight uh, a sort of a Hitchcockian plot with a sense of real kind of fun. It's it's almost him doing a rom com, yeah. Um, which is such a weird idea, but it works. Um, and you know, it's quite famously, it's obviously um, Cary Grant and Grace Kelly, um, who he'd obviously worked with before. Um, this was, I think, this was Grace Kelly's final film with him before becoming Grace of Monaco. <laughs> yes, pretty, pretty much before turning into Nicole Kidman. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and they are such their, their, their chemistry. Obviously, these are two amazing, iconic actors of their era, uh, and their chemistry is is so great. Mm. Um, she, in particular, she it, it, it's kind of a, a slightly weird 
role where she has to play she's um she's someone who is kind of smart enough to work out that Cary Grant's character is uh this cat burglar um but she's also sort of quite flighty in in a, in her sort of actions oh yeah um yeah. but she manages to make that kind of contradiction work um and Cary Grant of course is is amazing um there's so much of this film that is just like watching him strut around the French Riviera <laughs> and watching this when you're like locked up at home as much as we're, we're kind of pitching this as uh you know uh we're all in quarantine it's time to catch up on some classic films like watching this is really painful because you're like I just want to go out in the sunshine and this amazing scenery uh this these kind of spectacular vistas and mm. just drive around and you know have a, a fancy picnic with with Cary Grant and his his leathery leathery skin um uh yeah but it's 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 one that I, I I'm sort of watched neither of my parents are big film people particularly um, so I don't have that kind of uh, relationship like you do, Jack, where my parents kind of got me to watch stuff at a young age and introduced right, me yeah, to yeah. stuff that that perhaps I wouldn't have thought to watch myself. Um, but this was one of the few films where it was kind of a thing that, that I don't think it was even my parents, uh, my dad trying to introduce it to me i think it was just this was a film that he liked and it happened to be on um and so i have i have kind of this kind of memory of watching it with him and and just um you know hitchcock is such a great director just the way he kind of used the visuals and the 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 tension that he does manage to establish even in this relatively uh sort of sweet confection of a film um it's 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 just it's it's a little bit of comfort viewing um in terms of when i think of classic films it's something to yeah. kind of go back to and just enjoy the, the the world that it creates um and uh it's it's funny the 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 uh, rewatching it recently um the thing that really jumped out at me, uh, and you mentioned it right at the beginning of this episode, of the the, the day for night shooting, uh, yeah. um, and this is this has got some real ropey like oh so that you just shot this in daytime and then put a kind of blue filter yep. over it um, because obviously with all the cat burglary stuff a lot of it's set at night and it does not look like nighttime, <laughs> um, but. Uh, yeah, aside aside from that minor thing, it, it's. I think there's a reason that this kind of film, there is, you can find it throughout. You know, it's very much this kind of Thomas Crown affair that you know, or um, you know, we talked about Mr. and Mrs. Smith rather yeah, uh, yeah. dismissively earlier, but this mixing up this kind of um, intrigue and uh, you know, uh, crime thriller with a kind of rom com elements works really well and this is one of those uh kind of uh examples of it being done mm. very well yeah um i'm gonna make another bold statement here we go hot go takes from matt dogden it might not be that bold i don't know 
if you were to say to a contemporary audience, I think if you were trying to say what, uh, can you give me a parallel, a, a, a career, contemporary career that is similar to Hitchcock's? And you're like, oh, okay, there isn't one. Hitchcock is Hitchcock. Are you fucking mad? <laughs> um, but I think there is because you have to have Ooh. someone who, or yeah, uh, dark as fuck, that can be harrowing and, and brutal, um, pioneering in terms of filmmaking, um, but also a really fucking weird side, um, kind of <laughs> like with um, with this film, kind of playful fun and like, oh, I want to do a sort of sexy fun trip abroad. And like, what are you doing? Um, it's like it's it's structurally brilliant and you've crafted it really well. And the actors involved are fantastic. But this is all a bit silly, isn't it? I mean, you, I mean, again, case in point, Hitchcock's film before this was Rear Window. It's a fucking yeah. amazing film. And he's like, and that would do a silly thing in the French Riviera. Look at Cary Grant driving this car. <laughs> they got some chemistry. Have a kiss, eh? Oh, he's going to steal something. He's like, what the fuck is this? Honestly. <laughs> and to me, there's no career closer to that than the fucking Coen brothers. Interesting. So the Coen brothers to me is our version of a contemporary Hitchcock. So if you like the Coen Brothers films, you're like, I love the wackiness of something like the the, the noir aspect of, uh, aspect of the dude in, in The Big Lebowski. It's so weird, uh, but so brilliant and so, you know, eclectic in what it gathers together. But then also there's like No Country for Old Men, which is so fucking dark and like, and True Grit, which is a remake, but it's a good remake. Um, and then also you've got something like Hail Caesar. I don't know if I like it or not, but it's kind of fun. Everyone's having a good time. That's Hitchcock. That's kind of what's going on there. And he's, he does his darker stuff and his things. And I think, again, if you think like, oh yeah, Hail Caesar. And you've got, you know, Brolin and, and uh, George Clooney and stuff like that, and Scarlett Johansson. And you're like, yeah, that's to catch a thief, kind of. It's that kind of same. Look at these people. Look at them doing silly, fun things. It's, you know, uh, in the same way that Ocean's Eleven kind of had a bit of a similar vibe, a little bit. Um, yeah, very, very much so. Yeah. Um, but again, it's, it's a, it's. I think Tim does a good. One thing we haven't done with our things thus far. That's a really nice escapist piece. So if you want something to like, not remind you of what's going on at the minute. That's a good example. I mean, you may still see the crowded beach and go, no, social distancing. No. Um, I've been taken back by how much people fucking smoke in the past. Jesus. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I think it's a it's a really solid one. And it's also in color, which also helps. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, it's just a fun, you know, romp. In, your, in a weird way, it kind of reminds me of uh, the castle of Cagliostro in the sense that it's like, you know, gentleman thief operating for his own means and a particularly sneaky heist and so like, yeah it's it's fun it's it's a romp no yeah it's uh talk, talking about sort of um the escapist nature of it it does it reminds me a little bit and and this is this is dismissing it far more than it deserves but there that that tweet that is uh why must a movie be good is it not enough to sit somewhere dark and see a beautiful face huge um, <laughs> That's a very good. That's all you need yeah. in life. Yeah. So I mean, that's given people a pretty wide selection of options. You know, we've covered, we've covered family-friendly stuff. We've covered comedy. We've covered drama. We've covered action. Um, child murderers. Child murderers. Space sexy times. Yeah, and multiple you know. decades. Um, we've we've hit thirties, uh, fifties, sixties, seventies. 
but not 40s, Jack. No, Told no, you. No. <laughs> Told you. Like the 40s didn't exist. But that's because the internet didn't allow for it. Yeah, the streaming markets didn't have it, unfortunately. Sorry, everybody. They haven't got Passport to Pimlico on Amazon, so, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, let us, let us know what you are watching. Uh, let us know if you have been checking out some more classic, older films. Uh, let us know if you do end up watching any of these, what you think of them, if you've, if you've not seen them before. We would really be intrigued as to mm-hmm. your thoughts. Um, and, uh, yeah, we will be continuing with our interseason content. Uh, but if you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sequelizers. You can follow us on Instagram, where we're also at Sequelizers. Mm. Uh, and the same on Facebook. Uh, we have our Patreon, obviously, uh, where if you can support us, we, we really appreciate that. We'll be putting up some more bonus content. Um, so that's patreon.com slash Sequelizers. Um, we also have our shop now where you can buy T-shirts, uh, which is Sequelizers.com slash shop. Uh, if you've got something longer, we're still we're building up towards a listener feedback episode. So if you've got questions or comments that you want to make, uh, you it can is it is us. next week. So get in right now. Yes, um, we we have uh, a whole load of uh, those channels we just mentioned, and you can also email us sequelizers at gmail dot com. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, come join us on our Discord, which we'll have pinned links to in various places, uh, where we've just got this really fun community who chat about films and comics and wrestling and video games and all various sorts of things. We're sort of keeping each other company uh, at, during this uh, strange and uh, troubling times. Mm. If you want to find us individually, Tim is at trivia underscore lad. Jack is JLW Chambers. I'm Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. On pretty much everything, you can find us. Um, and you can come talk to us individually as well, if you like. But uh, until next week, what's the, what's the phrase people say these days? Stay safe and stay positive. <laughs> Which we can give us a bit of a sequelizer twist. Watch films and we'll see you later. I think watch films and see you later is probably our actual catchphrase. Yes, that's 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 a good one to cut out.